Neither Sarah nor I felt the sense of elation we had expected. The inside of the structure consisted of a single large stone-floored room with a wide hearth at one end. An elderly woman was selling souvenir postcards. There was nothing else, either physically or spiritually. Whatever we had expected to find was not there. A few other tourists wandered aimlessly through the space, looking as disappointed as we did. I tried to counterfeit enthusiasm for Sarah's sake, and she did the same for mine, but nothing availed. After all the effort to get to the natal place of my hero, the result was anticlimactic. Still, it was his birthplace, even if its austere old bricks seemed to have no message for us. At first we were reluctant to leave, continuing, I suppose, to cling to the hope that one or the other of us would be seized with inspiration by just the thought of our being there. When about twenty minutes of this had no demonstrable issue, we made up our minds to leave. Hitching a ride in a German tourist's Mercedes, we made short work of getting back to the center of town. Absent the anticipation of the ascent, the ride down the long hill was depressing. It had been a drought year in 1984. Every olive tree was still barren and shriveled, the grass was brown, and the soil was parched and almost sandy. In such an atmosphere, it was difficult to conjure up the classic image of the golden-haired child Leonardo, becoming ever more enthralled by the beauties of all the magnificence of living nature around him, as he gambled in the lush beauty of the surrounding fields. And there was worse to come. Some long time later I came to realize, through my reading and conversations with Italian friends, that no one has any idea where Leonardo was born. In fact, his natal house may not even have been in Vinci. According to some, he was born in the nearby town of Anchiano, and brought to Vinci only after a few years, or perhaps it was a few months. Sarah and I may have been in the house where he was born, but then again, we may not. To add to the confusion, we later found out that our walk up the hill had taken us out of Vinci and into Anchiano itself, whose citizens consider the Casa Natale di Leonardo to be a hoax perpetrated on gullible tourists. Leonardo was not to be found in that place. In fact, he is not to be found in any place. He is not a creature of places or monuments or even of permanence. He flashed across his time and was gone, leaving a vast body of work, almost none of which, except the paintings, could be fully appreciated until centuries after his death and far away from the house in which he was almost certainly not born. Quoting the famous statement of Freud, he was like a man who awoke too early in the darkness, while the others were all still asleep. The eminent Vincian scholar Ladislao Retti has followed the image by pointing out how many of Leonardo's manuscripts disappeared into that darkness. It is only through the relatively recent rediscovery of some of them that the enigma of his genius is being illuminated. And yet he remains, and always will, precisely what Retti calls him, the unknown Leonardo. Leonardo da Vinci was a creature of ideas. In some ways he is elusive, in others he is so close to us that his voice is easily heard. Far more is known about his thought and the great range of his mind than about the actual events and circumstances of his life. But even his thought must remain always somewhat obscure to us. If he is, as Sir Kenneth Clark so appropriately calls him, the most relentlessly curious man in history, he is also the historical figure about whom we are most relentlessly curious. 
As Leonardo must ultimately remain unknown to us, so did the restraints remain to him that perforce stood in the way of his achieving his objectives as a student of nature. Without the instruments, the mathematics, the experimental methods of a later time, he could not have known in which direction to set out so that he might achieve his final aim, which was a systematization of all knowledge of nature. So he struck out in every direction at once, and the greatest of wonders is how much he was able to achieve in the absence of technologies and information that would be available only to modern thinkers. He has been criticized, now and in his own time, for finishing so little of what he started. And yet, how could it have been otherwise, at least in the areas of his scientific work? The probings of his mind had gone well beyond the supporting knowledge and technology of his era. Had much more been available, it would certainly have released his genius to fly as far in reality as it did in his conjectures and fantasies. Kenneth Keel, the foremost authority on Leonardo's anatomical studies, once sent me a paragraph extracted from a letter to a mutual friend, in which he described his own feelings about these matters, aroused while he was working on some of Leonardo's manuscripts. At every page I am fascinated by his intelligent questions and answers. But I often find myself realizing that however intelligent, however full of instinctive weight the questions are, if the supporting base of knowledge is not there, the answers are bound to contain errors. This makes my tale inevitably one tinged with sadness, and the more Leonardo struggles within his chains of ignorance, the sadder it becomes. Especially is this so, because though he breaks his fetters in many places, he never escapes from them. I wonder if in a number of fields, I would cite sociology, psychology, thanatology, we are not in a rather similarly sad state today with the fetters being no less powerful for being unknown to us, even unfelt. Of course, it is true that just as we have no way of knowing or even estimating the fences and fetters that still restrict even such mathematics-based studies as physics and astronomy in our day, let alone the fuzzier fields of Keel's concern, Leonardo could not have known the 15th century's limitations to his possible accomplishments. As he saw it, there were no boundaries and no impossibilities. Hard work and constant application would solve all riddles. God sells us all good things at the price of labor, he wrote, quoting from Horace. But he, as well as Horace, was wrong, and not only because his ideas outstripped his era. Though he was a man well beyond his time, he was yet a man of his time, and subject to certain deeply internalized preconceptions by which he was unknowingly led into error in some of his interpretations. As much as he denied it and tried to avoid it, he was nevertheless silently influenced by the formulations of his predecessors, and restricted by the spirit of the Renaissance. As free and open as that spirit has been proclaimed to have been, it was only so in comparison to what had come before. Leonardo needed the seventeenth century, or perhaps the twentieth. It was not only the spirit of a later era that was needed, but its very knowledge and the lessening of the inherent biases of earlier times. Failing that, even this expansive reach of man's intellect must leave us with the sadness Keel felt that it could not have been otherwise. 
And yet, despite the limitations imposed by those unavoidable fetters, Leonardo's was a modern mind, the first of its kind that posterity can look back on. Like every true scientist of every era, he was taught by nature, and determined never consciously to allow himself to be slave to the thinking of the past. That the past sometimes entered unknowingly into his interpretations of what he saw should not blind us to the detachment with which he attempted to make his observations. His writings refer only infrequently to the great men of antiquity. He fought powerfully against the unseen temptations of his intellectual heritage, and won far more often than he lost. Anyone who in discussion relies upon authority uses not his understanding, but his memory, he wrote. In the last analysis, he trusted only what he could see in his own studies. Those misinterpretations that inevitably crept into his writings were the result of an inherited tradition so pervasive that even the thinking of a genius of such magnitude could not entirely escape them. Though he has often been called the ultimate Renaissance man, there is much to be said for the argument that Leonardo was only in part a man of the Renaissance. While he epitomized the zest for life and nature that was the guiding theme of humanism, he did at the same time eschew the dependence on ancient sources and the worshipful repetition of its principles that equally characterized its scholarship. Those who study the ancients and not the works of nature, he wrote, are stepsons and not sons of nature, the mother of all good authors. He was the first to approach the pronouncements of the Aristotles, Ptolemies, and Galens as teachings to be tested and challenged, rather than as teachings to be necessarily accepted and verified. That his